going to continue our series uh, in Acts. And uh, as we start this morning, I need to call to your attention something that Todd shared with us last week. So, John, if you can cue that up. Next week, I've asked Dave Beatty, our resident deacon expert, to weigh in on another internal conflict in the church, one that led to the selection of what many believe were the first deacons of the early church. Now, that sounds like a great compliment, doesn't it? A resident expert on deacons. <laughs> Whatever that means. Well, the deal is, um, that's, that wasn't a compliment. It was a little jab. It was an uh, inside joke. And I think it's only fair that you hear the backstory so you know what Todd was talking about. we got a great group of elders in this church, and they have a good sense of humor. Shelley's a good example of that, you know, that was up here giving the announcements this morning. And once in a while, we get a little frisky with each other. And we were having a discussion a few weeks back, and we were talking about deacons. And um, in an offhanded way, I just gently made a remark and expressed an opinion. And Brad Colby got his hackles up a little bit, you know. And the, the uh, decibel level went up in the room, and uh, somebody started yelling, cage match, cage match. And, you know, I'd already been through that once with another elder, uh, Brian Burns, and uh, he had to back down. So, But anyway... Um, it was over this subject of deacons. And, you know, it's all good. We, we made up with each other and had a man hug and all that stuff. And, and uh, Todd, who I guess hasn't been exposed to this too much, uh, got really tickled. He just thought that was so funny. And he talked to me afterwards. And then he came to me when he asked me to fill in for him this morning and he said, Guess what? The passage you're going to deal with on this Sunday is about deacons. So that was what the deal was last week. You know, he's giving me a little jab. And um, now you know the inside story. To call someone the resident expert on deacons at West Bowles Church is roughly akin to calling someone the resident expert on physics in a pool hall. Not that I spend any time in a pool hall, but an expert on physics would uh, quickly see that everyone that plays pool is a functioning physicist. They apply principles of physics like motion and kinetic energy, transfer of energy, angle of reflection, etc. With every shot. There's a, there's a, a transfer of energy from a stick, for, or from an arm to a stick, to a sphere that's hitting in just a specific way to make it go a certain direction. And then that sphere hits another sphere to make it go in a certain direction. And if they're any good, it all works out great. George said to me after the last service, well, that makes uh, us cue balls. <laughs> Speak for yourself, cue ball. In any case, um, no one thinks about physics in a pool hall, I don't think, or calls himself a physicist, but that's what they are. Now, pushing the metaphor, I would say to you this morning that every Christian, every true follower of Jesus is in some way, some sense, a deacon. I say that because to be a deacon is to be a servant, and every Christian should be a servant. There's a sign on the marquee of a church that I pass frequently, and it reads, A non-serving Christian is an unbiblical Christian. Well, despite that it's kind of an awkward phrase, and I can't imagine why anybody would want to portray that message to thousands of cars that drive by, um, I do agree with the sentiment. Um, I would modify it a little bit. Something more eloquent along the lines of this. A Christian who doesn't serve is like a duck that doesn't quack. Either the duck is dead or there's something terribly wrong. It's in the nature of a duck to quack. 
And it is in the nature of a Christian to serve. One of the words for servant that is translated from Greek to English in our New Testament is the word diakonos. In some places, that word diakonos is translated by the word deacon. And there are several other Greek words translated by the English word servant, but that's a bigger study than we have time for. We're limiting ourselves and our thoughts to diakonos because it's the only word in the Greek New Testament that is also translated deacon. So I think it's fair and safe to write this equation. Deacon equals diakonos equals servant. Jesus said in more than one place that the greatest among his followers would be the servant, diakonos, of the others. Paul uses the term diakonos to refer to the followers of Jesus in relation to their Lord, the followers of Jesus in relation to one another, and the servants of Christ in the church. So, in my opinion, it would not be wrong to say that every greeter, every usher, Every nursery worker, every Sunday school teacher, every Awana's leader or listener, every sound and light tech, every choir member, everyone on the worship team, everyone who sets up tables and chairs, those people who come down here on Mondays to pick up the trash, those who serve in the office, everyone who's involved in prayer, those who help with the building and on and on and on. Everyone who serves in the church is a deacon. My opinion, a functioning deacon. Now, I'm going to have a little parenthesis here and I'll warn you that if you don't like what I say here then you can email to T. Lanting at... I've been, I've been waiting to say this for a long time. T. Lanting at westbowlschurch.com. Because of that principle, we should never be short of workers. You know, um, there's a ministry in our church that is, struggles all the time for workers. That's the children's ministry. We have nearly 200 people that are involved in children's ministry in this church between Awanas and Sunday school and, and preschool on Sunday morning. And they're always looking for help. There's plenty of us here to help. There's plenty of us here who aren't doing anything that could help. So it's a travesty. It's ridiculous for us to ever need workers because every single one of us needs to serve. You know, uh, Craig said to me one week, he said, well, uh, everybody that has a little kid should serve in the, in the children's department. And I said, uh-uh, those people need relief. Everybody who's already got their kids grown up a little bit should serve in the children's department. And by the way, the benefit is it's training for grandparents. So you'll learn something out of it. Now, that's, that's the underlying idea behind deacons, but in two, possibly three passages in the New Testament, the term deacon is used as a specific, a specific title. It implies an official capacity or office in the church. In Philippians, Paul greets the overseers and the deacons in the beginning of his letter. In 1 Timothy, he gives the character qualifications for deacons. And in Romans uh, 16.1, which is a controversial passage to some people, Paul seems to refer to a woman named Phoebe as a deacon. That's controversial to some people. I have no problem at all with women serving in the church, even being identified as deacons and even elders. But since I am not the resident expert on the role of women in the church, somebody else can unpack that topic, Todd. The point I'm trying to make is this. When it comes to deacons or pastors or elders, for that matter, the role is much more important than the title. It's serving each other that counts. And I think that's the point that Jesus is making in Matthew 23. If you'll take your bulletin, you'll notice there's uh, two verses or two passages here. I want you to read with me Matthew 23, 8 through 11. Matthew 23. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, 
and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he's in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. I think the point Jesus is making is, don't get hung up on titles and positions. We're all brothers and sisters, and if we're doing it right, we all serve Christ in his church any way we can. Now, all that run-up brings us to the sixth chapter of Acts. Some have identified the account here in this passage as the point in history in the church where the office of deacon was established. Maybe, maybe not. There are scholars on both sides of that issue. The word deacon is not used at all in this passage, but the concept of those serving in the church to address a specific need is certainly here. Let me read this to you. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon. Parmenius and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. If we put this passage in the context of what we've seen so far in Acts, as Todd's been leading us through this, the question arises, what's the deal? Why was this story important? We've read about tongues of fire and rushing winds, stirring sermons with enormous responses, healings, arrests of leaders, deliverance by angels, people dropping dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. So what's a little dispute in the church? Let me note a couple of things. In the first place, there seems to be a bit of a pattern developing early in Acts. Following the initial huge response to the gospel, there was pressure from the outside, followed by trouble in the church. Then more pressure from the outside, and then trouble on the inside, which will be followed by greater pressure from the outside and other issues that the church has to resolve on the inside. Pressure from the outside, trouble on the inside, which is the greater threat to the life of the church. Hold on to that thought. And what was the trouble inside? First, it was hypocrisy. People trying to look better and more godly and more committed to Christ than they really were. That's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And and now it seems in this passage that some people feel they're not being treated fairly. The Hebraic widows are getting preferential treatment and the Grecian widows are getting neglected. What's that about? Well, keep in mind that the early church was almost completely Jewish in makeup. There was a distinction between those who lived near Jerusalem and those from further away. And you know that at Pentecost, the people that lived further away came to Jerusalem and they heard the gospel and they they repented and they were converted and they stuck around. In general, the further Jewish people lived from Jerusalem, the more they were influenced by Greek culture, including language and customs. 
And these are the the ones who Luke calls Grecian Jews. Those who live closer to Jerusalem, he calls Hebraic Jews. They were more likely to observe uh, more strictly the Jewish customs and traditions than the Grecian Jews. On uh, one very important Jewish tradition that was probably carefully maintained by the Hebraic Jews um, and less carefully maintained by the the, um, Grecian Jews was the care of widows in the community. There were specific provisions on how to take care of widows. Now remember, all of these people were sharing their worldly goods with each other. And remember that all this was happening in Jerusalem. Do you think it's plausible that maybe the Hebraic Jews were doing a better job with their widows than the Grecian Jews? Do you think it's possible that since this was their turf, that maybe they had a little bit more influence on what was happening? I think possibly. With all these people, and remember they started with more than 3,000 and grew constantly, wouldn't there have been all kinds of problems? I'm going to go out on a limb and say, yeah, there were all kinds of problems. There were people that didn't like this and didn't like that, griped about the lighting, griped about the heating, griped about the cooling, griped about... You know, there were all kinds of little problems that went on. You got people, you got problems. You got lots of people, you got lots of problems. You can quote me on that. So what made this problem rise to the level of importance that it seems to have? Let me read you the first few verses of this chapter from what's called an expanded translation of the New Testament by a biblical scholar named Kenneth West. Kenneth West, not Archean West, but uh, this guy was a lot older than Ken. He takes the Greek words and he, he kind of parses them out and makes sure that we really understand what they say. And in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a low undertone murmuring of the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, who were conferring together, secretly complaining against the Hebrews. The complaint being that their widows were being neglected in the daily provision of food. A low undertone murmuring and them gathering together to secretly complain. Now we got us a problem. Murmuring. That's a a very powerful word. Murmuring. It's onomatopoetic. It means uh, it's it sounds like what it is, like cuckoo or boom. You know, those are words that sound like what they mean. Murmur. Murmur is what the Jews did in the Old Testament when they were out in the wilderness. And they got tired of Moses and Aaron and they said to God, who are these bozos? And they said to one another, we should get rid of them, get some new leaders. They were murmuring. And when they didn't like the food that God provided and there wasn't enough water, they murmured. Say that with me. Murmur, murmur. Murmur, murmur. Let's do, let's do a little experiment. Let's start over here and we'll go this way. Start out saying murmur. Murmur, 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 murmur. Say, say it with a murmur, 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 murmur. Come on, murmur, 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 murmur. See how contagious that is? Bad stuff. Last year I was, with, I was diagnosed by my doctor with a condition that he called precancerous. I've probably heard that word before and didn't think much of it, but now I think a lot about it. It's a little more personal. And I want to say to you that was, what was going on in the early church here with this murmuring was precancerous to the church. They were not only murmuring, they were getting together in little groups and complaining about how things were being handled. Had they lived in our time, they probably would have been planning to leave the church in Jerusalem and join another. Of course, that wasn't an option for them. Or maybe they would have just started their own church, the Grecian formula church. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> 
Now, remember, I asked you, what was the greater threat to the church? Pressure from the outside or problems on the inside? My experience has been that the problems on the inside are far more dangerous than persecution from the outside. And what did the early church do about it? Let me just point out two things. In the first place, their leaders decided not to lose focus. The apostles knew how important the ministry of teaching the word of God was, especially at this point in the life of the church. So they determined not to be distracted. There were all these new converts. They were coming in. They had not been with Jesus, but the apostles had. They didn't see how Jesus applied the words of their scriptures, the Old Testament, and showed them that they were fulfilled in him. So somebody had to teach them. And the apostles said, you know, if we get distracted by this speed bump here, we're going to lose our focus. So they said, we need to do something different. So they chose seven men, but not just any men. They looked for men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom to deal with the situation. There's something else that you probably wouldn't know about this men, but it's worth noting. All seven of them had Greek names. How smart is that? It was the Greek Jews that felt slighted. So it was a stroke of genius to put people with Greek names in charge of straightening out the problem. And it was obvious that they weren't going to be biased against the, the, um, the Greeks. Now, what was the final result? The word of God spread and the numbers of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. There's one other thing that comes to my attention here, and that's in verse 7. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. A large number of priests. Who were priests? Well, those were the guys who were at the temple, ministering in the temple, the Jewish people that were ministering in the temple all the time. And where were the new Christians meeting? In the temple area. So these priests undoubtedly saw this group of Christians and something had to kind of pique their interest. They were able to deal with their problem without separating. They were able to overcome it. There was a strong dose of love that was being used in this, not just who's technically correct. And so these priests very likely came to Christ because of what they saw. We started a, a pilot program in this church. We, uh, we realized that there were some needs that might not be, meting, be getting met. We, need, we had a lot of new folks here. We need to greet them better. We need to connect them better. And despite his best efforts, Ryan Long can't know everybody and can't meet everybody, although he comes pretty close. And there are other things. We need help with serving communion. We need help with a new members class. We need help with baptism. We need help with some projects in the building. So we said, let's just call a few folks aside and we'll call them deacons and give them these responsibilities. We didn't make it a top-down program where we said, you know, you want to sign up to be a deacon. And the reason is because we weren't looking for people that wanted a position or a title. We're looking for people that want to serve. And we found some who want to serve. What's a deacon? The focus of the term diakonos is squarely on loving action on behalf of a brother or sister or neighbor. It calls us to look at our fellow human beings as objects of loving service. We extend to them for Jesus' sake. So be a deacon. Whether you're called specifically to take on that office or not, be a deacon. Be a servant. Find a place to serve. Don't be a duck that doesn't quack. We're going to stand and pray together. 
And um, I just want to remind you that there are some folks whose, whose service in this church is the service of prayer. And they come down here every Sunday and they're available to pray with you. If you have an issue or a problem or a praise or you just want somebody to pray with you, they'll be right down here. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the body of Christ and how we minister to one another. Thank you for the, the lovely way that our praise team and our choir has just opened our hearts to you this morning in music. We pray that we would be committed to be servants and do your will and serve one another out of hearts of love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next week.